Hi. I just saw Jared and Sam. They were walking the other way. Yeah, that room. perfect mixture of generosity and indifference? What? Oh, N-A-I, yes. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Secondly, if you do that, you'll get an A pretty much. But to make sure that you get an A, the second thing you need to realize is um, what I'm about to say. <laughs> I guess those who don't care, you know, what... <laughs> Whatever, there are olives of not different grades you could get. Anywhere between zero and a hundred. Tendency towards zero. <laughs> last week of class, last chance to learn why there's more than one order of infinity. Okay, so now you all know, right? What? Wasn't that cool? Wasn't that cool? <laughs> that was just so cool, right? Okay, as, as um, the doctor says at the end of Portnoy's complaint, now perhaps we may begin, yes? Okay. <laughs> literature, that's the literature part of this class, Portnoy's complaint. You know the Philip Roth says he stopped writing? Um, do you know Portnoy's complaint? Yes, you've heard of it? You've read it? Have you read it? Um, have other people read it? Yep. Uh, did it have its power to disgust even this late in the game? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, without Portnoy's complaint, there would be no, there's something about Mary. Um, but with Portnoy's complaint, there's something about Mary is like nothing. Um, all right. So remember that one of the two questions on your take home final, which you're going to do closed book and without notes and without consultation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as you all know, yes, yes. Um, is to show that there's more than one order of infinity. We may get a chance to show, or you guys may try to figure out how to show that there's not only more than one order, but that there are infinitely many more than one order. But right now we're just going to um, do what Contour did, not to be confused with Kant, what Contour did um, to show that there was more than one order of infinity. So... And then we'll want to review as well the irrationality of the square root of 2, or does everyone feel comfortable that they can prove it? Uh, somewhat comfortable. Okay. Um, so we'll want to go over that as well. And um, for Wednesday, you should read the Aronson article on, um, on who can name the biggest number, on busy beaver numbers, which is on the syllabus. We were, but then we got behind. How that happens in this class, I don't know. Um, but we have had, a, so far we have had a one-to-one -one correspondence of things that we've done in classes on the syllabus, classes we've actually had in classes on the syllabus. But like with the Hilbert Hotel, they've been kind of um, offset. What was the word you were going to use? Off-shifted. Off yeah, it's a good word. It's it, off-shifted. Okay, so... Who remembers how you order one way of ordering, and we only need one way, one way of getting the rational numbers between 0 and 1 into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers? 
Yes, Kenny. So we start with uh, one. Okay, we start with one. And loneliest number that you'll ever do. Then we go uh, one half. Yes, which can be as lonely as one. <laughs> it's half as lonely as the number one, or twice as lonely. I don't know. All right, enough with that. And then, uh, then we end up with uh, one third and two thirds, and then one fourth. You skip two fourths because it's equivalent to one half, um, and etc. Uh, you just uh, go one fifth, two fifths, three fifths. You have a full row for every prime number. Um, and does everyone see why? You have a full row for every prime number, like one third, two thirds. One, you don't have a full row for fourths. We, we're skipping two fourths. Full row for fifths. One, two, three, four fifths. For six, what do we do? We have someone else. One sixth. Five. Why are we skipping the others? We already listed them. Okay, now we're the seventh. So what do we have? Why do we have full rows for the prime numbers, anyone? Not you, Kenny. Anyone else? Yeah. Because they can't, they can't reduce. Um, when we talked about the square root of 2, what we said was that the um, numerator and denominator were going to be relatively prime. What does relatively prime mean, anyone? Yeah. They don't share common factors. Yeah, no common factors. So they don't have to be prime. They just have to be relatively prime in sharing no common factors. 9 over 25 is relatively, those two numbers are relatively prime, even though each of them is a composite number. Um, but here we have actual primes. Okay, we can, does everyone see how to do, oh, look at that. Does everyone see how to do the dot, dot, dot here? Oh, we missed the point, please. Yes, you did. Does everyone see, but we've done this before. Does everyone see how to do the dot, dot, dot? Anyone not see how to do the and so forth from this point? No, 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 this is, this is a setup. Okay. How does it, and that proves it, the end. <laughs> that the rest of it is left as an exercise to the reader. Yes, Joy. So, but, um, how is 9 over 25 a relatively prime thing? Because you can't, it, it's basically if a fraction is irreducible. Okay. It's that the two numbers, the numerator and the denominator, are what are called relatively prime. So that just means that they share no factors. Okay. Um, No, it doesn't have anything to do with, with relatively prime numbers. The full row here has to do with any prime denominator. You're not going to be able to reduce any numerator over that prime denominator to a smaller fraction. So we didn't do 2 sixths because we already had 1 third. Right. We didn't do 3 sixths because we already had 1 half. Okay, so it doesn't really have much to do with the relatively No, I, no, I was just trying to bring in the, the just remind y'all about um, thinking about primes and the relation of, oh, of sure. numerators and denominators. Oh, so it doesn't matter here. Okay. Here, just as a very quick um, um, uh, shortcut, what Kenny was saying and what, what will help us is to know that any prime denominator, you're going to have to go through every numerator up to, if you, if you have a prime denominator of value n, then you will list every numerator with that denominator up to n 
minus 1. Okay, that's the slightly harder way of putting it. But it just means that if the denominator is 13, there are going to be 12 fractions that we will list. Okay, imagine that this is under this. So we've just gone to the other side of the board. So we get a basically triangular setup where we have 1, 1 half, 1 third, 2 thirds, 1 fourth. We can just leave blank spaces as having no value. Um, where there are repetitions, three-fourths, four-fourths. We won't count those, but that just helps you get a triangular picture. You don't need a triangular picture, but it just shows how well-ordered you can make this, that it fits perfectly well into a triangular picture. Okay, so the result of that is that we can put these fractions between 0 and 1. We started at 1, and eventually we get to 0, or artificially close to 0, when we get 1 over infinity. We can put those fractions into 1 to 1 correspondence with the natural numbers. How do we do that? We do it the way we did with the Hilbert Hotel. That is to say, all we need to do to show that you have 1 to 1 correspondence, all that you need to do is be able to have a mapping from the natural numbers to the fractions that's bidirectional. So if I tell you, if I give you a natural number on a quiz, you can tell me what fraction it corresponds to. So if I say, natural number one, what number in that list is it? Which, what is, what, what is the number, the, the numbers? Where in the list do you find one? Is it the first, the second, the third? Which is it? The first. If I say natural number one-third, no, that's not, I'm sorry. If I say natural number three, you say? One-third. You say one-third. Yeah, so you can count down the list, and we can code it either way. If I say the fifth number on the list, you would go one, two, three, four, five, and you'd say one-fourth. If I said the seventh number on the list, you would say um, five, six, seven. The seventh number is one-fifth. The eighth number is two-fifths. The ninth number is three-fifths. The tenth number is four-fifths. The eleventh number is one-sixth. So if I say, what's one-sixth, you could count and say, oh, that corresponds to 11. If I say, what's 12, you could count and say, oh, that corresponds to five-sixths. Yeah? Is there a way to make an equation so that you don't actually have to write down the list and count out? Um, I think you would have to um, have, no, I, I believe, although I'm willing to hear someone show me I'm wrong, but my first instinct is to say, no, you would have to be able to predict primes um, with perfect accuracy, and we can't do that. Right. You can do the primes. Yeah, but you can, the, to have an equation which gives you a general, a general function that, that um, connects one to the other, you would have to have an equation that would pick out every and only primes. You have an equation that picks out every prime? Yeah, it's called, it's called the C of Eratosthenes. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, that's not an equation, that's an algorithm. The C of Eratosthenes isn't an equation. It's, it's an algorithm. It's, 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 it's an algorithm, yeah. Are you, are you saying that there's like a really fundamental distinction between defining something like it as an equation and using an algorithm to define it? <sighs> <laughs> Um, 
Because it's possible that, that I'm missing some subtlety here. And I, I mean, no, no, I, I, I don't think that if you and I were to argue about whether an algorithm and an equation could be described as the same thing, I would be right if you were wrong. Um, whoa. whoa. No, I don't think that. Some of us are, are unassuming, mild-mannered English professors, and some of us are computer science majors, right? And the one of us who would be the mild and unassuming English professor would be me. Um, so I think that, so how would you turn the sieve of Aristothenes into an equation? Just do it up to 20, let's say. Well, I don't think you can say, oh, this, so you just say this, you say, so we've got this. We've got this Eratosthenes. We've got this prime. All right, does everyone know what it is? The civil? so you take a prime, you take a prime two, and you say, okay, two's a prime. That means that I can get rid of every multiple of two up to infinity right now. And so, I, so the next the next number I have to um, examine for primality is the next number that's not a multiple of two. Oh, look, that's three. Is three prime one? Yeah, it is. Okay, now I can get rid of all multiples of three. So every time you find a new prime, you can cross out in all the natural numbers from that prime onwards all multiples of that number. So you don't have to check. You know, when you're when you're asked to to do all the primes as as people sometimes are in like eighth grade all the primes between 1 and 100, list all the primes between 1 and 100, everyone right away gets that you don't check the even numbers, right? That's, that's clear to everyone. You don't have to check the even numbers after 2. 50 isn't prime, and we're all sure of that, right? Anyone not sure of that? Okay, so you're not? I'm not sure of anything. Okay, good. So, so, so you're more skeptical than Descartes. You're a real Pyrrhonist, and that's a good thing. Um, but if you needed a grade and you might not be sure you needed a grade because it could all be Maya illusion anyhow. Um, but if you wanted the grade, you wouldn't, and you didn't have much time, you wouldn't check the even numbers. So does everyone see that you wouldn't check the even numbers when you're looking for primes? So then if you're slightly more sophisticated, you also wouldn't check, everyone knows the test for a number being divisible by three, which is you add the digits, and if the digits are divisible by three, so is the number. Did you not know that? Did anyone not know that? Okay, that, it's a really good thing to know. Um, so to test whether number is divisible by 3, is 111 divisible by 3? Yes, because 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3, therefore it's divisible by 3. So there are tests for divisibility. So if you're slightly more sophisticated, you'd say, I don't have to check the numbers divisible by 3 either. Everyone knows you don't have to check the numbers divisible by 5. Um, numbers divisible by seven. Um, how many people, if you're checking primes up to 100, will check 63? Um, probably most people won't because they'll see it's divisible by three. Um, yeah, and nine. Um, adds up to nine and seven. Um, how many people will check um, 35, I don't know, 49? Not too many. But at any rate, what you do is whenever you find a prime, you can, through some um, uh, mental, you, you can, by putting all the natural numbers into a representation, imagine crossing out all the multiples of the primes, and you don't have to check those numbers. So it makes it much more efficient 
to check for primes if you can skip a whole bunch of numbers. Um, so, checking for primes then, the question is, can crossing out multiples, can you put that into an equation? Which was your question, right so Greg? My argument is, so, um, I think ultimately what we, what we say we can put into an equation and what we say, oh, that's an algorithm, it's not an equation, is just a, a question of convention. For instance, we can have a, an equation that includes, say, uh, summation. Um, and so the sum of all, you know, we've got that sigma symbol, we say sum of i yeah. over, over 1 through 10. Well, that's just an algorithm that's, you know, you're adding up. The, how else do you calculate that but to have an iterative algorithm that adds up those numbers? So I would say that, um, that there's ultimately not a distinction between saying find all the primes below this number in an equation and find all the integers between yeah, but if you do the sum of sum um, from 1 to 10, there actually is an equation that will get you that sum. There are two ways you can figure out the sum. One is by an iterative algorithm, and the other is by doing an equation, n times n plus 1 over 2. Um, the in question... The general case, in the general case of the summation uh, notation, I don't think there's a way to say, um, given any expression, what's the sum of that? You can't always take the shortcut. The sh yeah, I know. So, th so that would be the point that you can't take a shortcut to primes either. Uh, I so think. Would you say that? Yeah. Would you say that the short that, that it's not an equation if I say x equals? It's not what Greg was asking for. What Greg was asking for is, can you just um, know what number um, is? Is there is there a shortcut to knowing? that six-sevenths is going to be number 15 in the list. Right, so you can just like plug in 17 and get whatever. I'm almost certain there isn't because you would then have to have a shortcut for saying whether a number was prime or composite. And if you had a shortcut for saying whether a number was prime or composite, then we couldn't have... I mean, there, the U.S. government might have such a thing. Um, no, I knew a mathematician who was... Who, who, was, who had proved a result that Euler had conjectured and no one had proved um, as, as when he was 21 or something. Um, and uh, one fall, um, we ran into him and said, Gnome, his name was John, so we called him Gnome. No, his name was Gnome. Gnome, we said. Um, How was your summer? What were you doing? He said, I can't tell you. Um, and what he was doing was working on prime numbers. So... People know, right, that the way um, secure in inscription works is that you that um, essentially you use a multiple of two extremely large prime numbers um, to produce one composite number, and you encrypt something by more or less. I'm, I'm I'm sure you have a more subtle way of putting this, but you encrypt by multiplying by this gigantic composite number, which only has two factors, which are two enormous primes, and you decrypt by factoring the multiple that you have gotten. It's very easy to encrypt because the composite number is public. This is what public key in inscription, in encryption works by. It's easy to encrypt because the composite number is public, but very hard to decrypt because the two prime factors are very, very hard to find. And that's how public key encryption works. That's why you can do HTTPS, um, which, which um, does the same sort of thing. But the point is it's very, very hard to factor high numbers. Um, the U.S. government, it's a gold standard for the NSA and I'm sure uh, the Ru Russia and various other um, 
um, countries are working really hard on secret ways of trying to figure out how to factor very large numbers. But there is no easy way to do it. That's the point. And so if there's no easy way to do it, there's no easy way to predict what number. So what I'm saying is I don't think there is a well-defined function that will get you from, um, from one list to the other list. But you can do it iteratively, which this, is what yeah. we're doing. This actually sort of, I think the heart of this is, is this idea of computational complexity. Yeah. That the question, is there a simple equation for it? Um, that the question, like, is there a simple equation for it? Um, really, I mean, since like we can write practically anything in, in the equation if we do, if we invent the right symbols for it, mm -hmm. the question I think that's really more important is is there an efficient way to compute it? Yeah, and so that gets down to this um, p versus np problem, right? Which is unsolved. Right. So yeah. we we don't know whether there's a simple shortcut to this. Yeah. But if there were, it would be completely game changing. Oh, it would be, yeah, it would be totally game changing. Yeah. Um, can we not? So wait, are you saying that um, it that there's another way of doing it? I think what you're saying, and then I'll agree if this is what you're saying, um, is that if you do it as a one-to-one -one correspondence of numerals rather than of numbers, um, then there are two numerals. Let's say there there can be an infinite number of numerals, all of which have the value one half. So you can have one half, two fourths, three sixths, and so on. And you can say, look, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the natural numbers. And all the numerals that are expressible as ratios, or all the numerals expressed as ratios between 0 and 1. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so that's fine. It doesn't matter. That, that, that's part of the Hilbert Hotel thing. Yeah, you can, you can do it as numerals rather than numbers. But we're kind of, because we're purists, we're a little bit more interested in numbers. Um, but you can do it as numerals as well. Um, the question, what is a number and whether numerals are numbers? You've all been taught that numerals and numbers are different things. We talked about this in class too, right? Yes, no? Sure. Yeah. Remember how many letters in the word letter? Four. Four. L, E, T, and R. Um, however, how many characters in the word letter? Six. So that's the difference between a number and a numeral. There is a theory um, that Saul Kripke is, and Wittgenstein also are most associated with, that numbers actually are numerals, um, and that you shouldn't distinguish between them. But mainly people do distinguish between them. Yeah. OK, so getting back to Yes, please. OK, so, um, so what is this previous? OK, so, so far we've done this before. We have proved that the rational numbers between 0 and 1, inclusive or exclusive, it doesn't matter because there's only, there will only be two different numbers. The rational numbers between 0 and 1 can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. Okay, remember we proved that the even numbers can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers? And the way we proved it is we said, if I say 1, you say 2. If I say even number 50, you say natural number 25. Um, any number I give you, you can give me the corresponding number in the other set. There's a bijection, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. Um, we can get from one to the other with um, assuming that no one makes an error in computation. With absolute certainty, we can get one from one to the other. So 
So the, num the natural numbers and the even numbers can pair off precisely and exactly so that everyone can go from one to the other. Okay, then we did um, numbers divisible by 10 or multiples of 10 with the natural numbers. You can do multiples of 10 with the odd numbers. How would you do it? Now I'm gonna go quickly over stuff we went before. How would you pair multiples of 10 with the odd numbers? Well, one way to do it is to say one goes to 10, two, um, three goes to 20, um, five goes to 30 or something like that, but that might be a little bit weird. But you could do it by saying, okay, um, the first odd number is one, the second odd number is three, the third odd number is five, the fourth odd number is seven, the fifth odd number is nine, etc. So you put the odd numbers into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. You now put multiples of 10 into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. And now what you say is, okay, I've used the natural numbers as a kind of relay or switch that gets me from an odd number to a multiple of 10. The third odd number is five, the third multiple of 10 is 30, therefore they're both the third in the list, and five corresponds to 30, okay? And that's what we call counting. But counting, remember, is putting things into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. That's all it is, okay? Are you, are, is everyone still there? Okay, knock, knock. Who's there? One to one. Oh, one, to one, who? one to one whom? Okay. This class is just terrible. These puns, they're killing me. And that's bad. Okay. Do the ether joke. No. <laughs> All right. Okay, so now we're just extending this a baby step farther. And we've already taken this baby step, but we're taking it again. The baby step farther is we're saying all the fractions made all the, all the rational numbers between 0 and 1, numbers that are expressible as fractions, which the square root of 2 can or can't be. Can't, cannot be. But all the numbers that can be expressed as fractions, as one whole number over another, all those numbers can be put in a list that we can construct. And we can construct that list so that when we make that list, now I'm saying that we're putting the set in a certain order. We can put those numbers in an order that enables us to count down to any rational number. So we can get to 997,246 over a million and one if we count long enough. It'll be a long, long time before we get there. Since we it's, don't have an equation. Since we don't have an equation to get us there. It'll be a long, long time, even with a very fast computer, to get there. But we, when we get there, we will know how many numbers down on the list of numbers that we're writing that number is. So it's in one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. And if someone gives you, says, constructing, listing the numbers between 0 and 1 like this, in this order, 
in this order which it's very easy to understand. If I ask you what is the 1,046th number on that list, with enough time or computing power, you could get a single answer and everyone else would get the same answer. So that's what one-to-one -one correspondence means. So that is something that I hope you guys have internalized. Okay, so are we cool? No, yes, what? Was your hand up? No, okay, yeah. The first time we did this. Yes. What was the reason for not establishing one of the orders that is like the first to come to mind, like just changing the numerator or denominator? So give me an example of an order. Like, um, like 1 over 1, 1 over 2, 1 over 3, 1 over 4. One because we'd never get to the end of those. In other words, if you try to write it as 1 over 1, the first is 1 over 1, the second is 1 half, the third is 1 third, the fourth is 1 fourth, you can get into one-to-one -one correspondence with all the numbers whose numerator is 1 if you put it in that order. But you would never, you would have to go through infinity to get to two-thirds. Why is that a problem? You, because you want to show that there's one-to-one -one correspondence. And if you list the numbers this way, you won't be able to show that. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means you won't be able to show it. So the point about one-to-one -one correspondence, what you could say is, look, why don't we show that there's one-to-one -one correspondence between the natural numbers and the even numbers by starting with one on the natural number side of things, but starting with, the, with an infinitely high even number and then subtracting by two each time. You can't show it that way. Once you've shown there's one-to-one -one correspondence, you can also show, or you have ipso facto shown, that there would be one-to-one -one correspondence doing it that way as well, but that's not a procedure we can use. We can't show it that way. So in order to show one-to-one -one correspondence, we have to be able to show a way of listing numbers that will allow anyone who is calculating accurately who is doing the algorithm accurately to agree with everyone else doing the algorithm accurately, which number among the naturals corresponds to which number among the rational fractions and vice versa. And if you try to go like this, what you're saying is true, but the only way to prove it true is by, by listing the numbers in a different order. The order that you're listing the numbers in won't prove it's true. The order that contour lists the numbers in will prove it's true. Does that make sense? Sort of. What you're, what you're saying is true, but it can only be proved by showing that it's always possible to know which number corresponds with which natural number. So if you do it this way, you would eventually get to 1 over infinity. But then if you come here to... Um, to um, denominators of three, um, two-thirds, two-fifths, or start, um, starting, I mean, sorry, with numerators of two, two-sevenths, two-ninths, two-elevenths, etc. If you do it that way, you couldn't say, no one could say, because you can't get back to the finites from the infinite with accuracy. It's like going into a black hole. You lose the information of what finite number you're up to 
if you get into the infinites. If you try to return to the finites, look, we didn't do this, but I'm going to say this very quickly, and this will be um, an example not, um, of what I mean. In infinite arithmetic, if you ask, let's just say we're talking about first orders of infinity. If you ask, what, take an infinite set, like the even numbers, take another infinite set, like the odd numbers, and add the cardinality of both those sets together. So there are an infinite number of numbers in the set of even numbers. There's an infinite number of numbers in the set of odd numbers. Add them together. How many numbers in the, set, in the two sets that you've added together? The answer is the same. So add all the even numbers to all the odd numbers and ask how many numbers in the union of the set of even numbers and odd numbers. And the answer is the same as the number of numbers in each of those two sets. So in infinite addition, you could say at one order of infinity, in infinite addition, we have something that looks like, just symbolically looks like, 1 plus 1 equals 1. That is, an infinite set plus an infinite set equals a set of the same size as each of the first two sets. No bigger, no smaller. Okay, does that make sense to people? It should. Now if you ask, okay, what about subtraction? Take all the natural numbers, that's an infinite set, and subtract all the odd numbers, what do you have left? An infinite set. So in subtraction, because you'll have all the even numbers left, right? So if you subtract an infinite set from an infinite set, one possible answer is an infinite set. Again, heuristically, not really, this is the wrong symbolism, but heuristically you could say when you do infinite subtraction, 1 minus 1 equals 1. However, you could also say take an infinite set, namely the set of all natural numbers, and subtract from that all numbers greater than 100, and what's left? The set of numbers from 1 to 100. So there, an infinite set minus an infinite set leaves you a finite set. And then you could also, so there you would have 1 minus 1 equals point some small number. Again, this is heuristic. This isn't the correct terminology in any way. It's just a way to get your mind around the rules of infinite arithmetic. Or you could say, take all the natural numbers and take away all the natural numbers. And what are you left with? Zero. So for subtraction, infinite, when you subtract infinite sets from each other, your answer can be an infinite set, a finite set, or zero. All of those are possible answers. But if you add two infinite sets together, your answer is a set of the same cardinality, technically is the larger of the two infinite sets that you've added together. Um, so that's a different kind of um, arithmetic, but there are rules, and there are rules you have to be careful about. Um, rules that are equivalent to the rules in finite arithmetic, but with different results. Now multiply infinite sets. So if you multiply an infinite set by a finite number, so what's, what's, what's two times? You should be able to do this in your head. So much easier than 2 times 513 would be 2 times infinity. Um, take the set of natural numbers and double it. How big an infinity do you have? The same. Why? Because the set of natural numbers is the same as the set of even numbers. 
The set of even numbers doubled would just mean adding an odd for every even, but that just gives you the set of natural numbers again. So if you multiply um, an infinite set by a finite number, what you get is the same. Two times one is one, again, using our heuristic um, symbolism for the rules. Two times one is one. Divide an infinite set in half, what do you have? You have, the same, you have a set of the same number. Take all the even numbers out of the set of natural numbers, you've divided it in half, and it's still the same size. So the size of infinite sets doesn't behave under the operations that change the sizes of finite sets. Infinite sets don't change in the same way that finite sets do. That's the first thing you can, that's the second thing you can figure out after you um, determine that one-to-one -one correspondence is what makes an infinite set an infinite set. That's why there's always room in the Hilbert Hotel, because there's always room for one more, because adding one to an infinite set doesn't change the size of that set. And adding any finite number to an infinite set doesn't change the size of that set. And since we're talking, in talking about the set of natural numbers, we're talking about the set of finite numbers, doubling the size of the set of natural numbers means adding all the finite numbers to that set, which means that we still have a set of the same size. Okay, so now the point is, if we add two infinite sets, so let's say we take, uh, no, let's, uh, we add, um, I'm trying to think of it, how, to, how to make this most relevant here. We add, um, take a finite number, add the number of natural numbers to that finite number. Now we have an infinite set, right? Subtract the number of natural numbers from the infinite number that was our result after we did the first addition, we won't be back to the first number. We'll either have an infinite number or we'll have some finite number which only by chance might be the first number or we'll have zero. So once you get into infinity, it's not easy to get out of it again. And it's certainly you can't find your way to where you started. If you circuit through infinity, you can't get back to where you started. That's really crucial for understanding what doing simple operations with, in, with infinite numbers looks like. You don't get back to where you started. Infinity loses information. If you had all the information, it would be finite information. Okay, does that more or less make sense to people? More or less. More or less? orders of infinity. Well, we haven't gotten there yet. Okay. So the point, however, look, this is what's crucial. All we have to do to show that there are countable, that there are a countable number. Countable means in one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. That there are a countable number of fractions between 0 and 1 is to show some procedure for counting them. That's all we have to do. You don't have to show that any way you list them, they're countable. You just have to show that there exists a way of listing them that will list them all, and that if you list them this way, they're countable. Okay, does that make sense to people? So the way you're suggesting, you, we haven't shown that they're countable. 
because we just don't know what we'll get, what we'll be up to by the time we get to two-thirds. But the way Contour lists them, he shows that they are countable because he says two-thirds is going to be the second one. And any fraction you give him, he can tell you and you can see for yourself what number it's going to correspond to, um, how far you would have to count, how many fractions you would have to count to get to that number. So the really crucial thing is not that you can list them any way that you want and they'll be countable. In particular, in Greg's way of listing them, we don't know how to count them in that way. But that there's some way to list them that makes them countable. That's all Contour is trying to show is that there's some way of doing it. Okay? So are there any questions about that? Because that's a crucial conceptual step here. Yeah? What you're saying is that it has to work both ways and that any number between uh, 0 and 1 could correspond to a, uh, a finite natural number? Yes. Okay. And it has to work both ways. All right. That would be the one-to-one -one correspondence part. Okay, so does everyone get that? You need to know this. Your life will be blighted if you don't. Okay. Now Contour says, and this is the crucial next thing, the really beautiful thing that he did. He spent 10 years. 10 years. Count them. Same number of years as number of fingers on my hands, if you include thumbs as fingers. 10 years. One-to-one -one correspondence. Look, one year with my thumb, two years with my index finger, et cetera, three years with Tallman. Um, ten years trying to figure out a way. What? Well, some people think that thumbs aren't, they say, no, they're digits. Yeah. 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 They are. Yeah. Yeah. Only third graders. Anyway. Yeah, but you know, the Simpsons and um, Family Guy, they only have eight fingers. Okay. Yeah. All right. Or if you. Consider the thumbs six fingers, which is great. How come they don't have base eight numeral systems in those cartoons? Yeah, they should. <laughs> All right. Um, now Contour spent 10 years trying to figure out, it didn't take him long to figure out a way to list the rationals, but he spent 10 years trying to figure out a way to list all the reals between zero and one. Now, the reals, you will recall, include the irrational roots of rational numbers, like the square root of 2. They also include the transcendental numbers. So the transcendental numbers, anyone define a transcendental number? <laughs> no one? We did, but can you define it? A transcendental number is a number that isn't the root of any equation with rational coefficients. It's not the rational root of any equation with rational coefficients. That the square root of 2 is, the, is, is a solution to the equation x squared equals 2. Um, so it's, or 1x squared equals 2. Um, so you have a co rational coefficient 1, a rational exponent um, 2, and a rational um, result, too, a, ra a rational thing that it's equal to, namely 2. So um, the square root of 2 is irrational, but the numbers in the equation, every numeral in the equation um, that you're solving is a rational number. 
but if you have equations where you have something like x to the square root of 2, if the exponent is the square root of 2, then you're in a different place. It's not that easy to prove that numbers are transcendental, um, but there are two different kinds of irrational numbers, those that are roots to equations that you can put in rational terms and those that aren't. So the point is pi to any exponent will, any rational exponent will never give you a rational number. Pi squared is as irrational as pi. Pi cubed is as irrational as pi. Pi to the um, 23.622 is as irrational as pi. The square root of pi is as irrational as pi. No matter what you do to pi with the tools of rational numbers, you will never get a rational number out of pi. And that's called a transcendental number. Um, it turns out, for reasons that I don't, um, that I'm not good enough to know, but it turns out that there are an infinite, well, maybe this, I, actually, I might be, um, there are an infinite number of, um, that the order of transcendental numbers is infinitely greater than the order of irrational numbers, which is itself infinitely greater than the order of rational numbers. So we have different orders of infinity when we talk about transcendental numbers, irrational numbers, sort of normal irrational numbers, easy to construct irrational numbers, and rational numbers. But that doesn't matter. All that matters is that Contour spent all this time trying to show that there was a way of listing all the numbers between 0 and 1 in such a way that you would know which number was which. So you could try it like this, something like what Greg is doing. You could say, okay, so we have 1, and then we have 1 half, and then we have the square root of 2, and then the cubed root of 2, and then the fourth root of 2, dot, 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 to the, to there. Um, and then we get to one third and the square root of three and I mean it wouldn't be the square root of two, the square root of two over two, whatever. That there that you would try to do it that way. Um, but he couldn't figure out a way that you could always that you wouldn't have to circuit through infinity before you got to the next finite number. So he tried various ways of doing it. And then he came up with a new idea. And the new idea was what's, was like with the square root of 2, what's called a reductio. So a reductio is you assume that something exists and see if there's a problem if you make that assumption. So remember, we assumed that you could write the square root of 2 as a over b. And by looking at the square root of 2 written as a over b, we discovered that we couldn't reduce that to a relatively prime expression. That is, we proved um, that a both that b both was and wasn't even. That b had to be odd, but b also had to be even. We'll go over this again. But we assumed we could do this. We did some simple arithmetic on that. And we found that b had to be odd, but we also found that b had to be even. And therefore, it turned out that if you assume the square root of 2 can be written as a over b, 
you get a contradiction. B is odd is one absolute requirement, if that's true, and B is even is another equally absolute requirement, if that's true. And the only way around this is to say, ah, you can't write it that way. It can't be written as a ratio of two numerals. And so we call that an irrational number. That's what we did. Yeah? Why, where do we get the rule that it has to be both an even and an odd? We proved that B has to be odd, right? Why? How? Because we... Okay, we'll, we'll go over that again. Can we go over it? Well, don't you want to know about transfinite numbers? Oh, well, I, I want to know if they have Yeah, that's the final. That's, they're both on the final. Okay, can anyone do this quickly? Yeah. All right, so. Come up. <laughs> leap, 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 leap. I have a question. Go, go, go. All right, so about what, what you were saying so, do you think that's air you're breathing? <laughs> no. Um, so, in order for this to exist, it must be the case that there exists, uh, that there, and it's in lowest terms, it must be the case that there does not exist some common divisor between these. But there does? Does not. Does not. One of them has to be odd. The, one of them has to be odd, either the top or the bottom. So, do you want me to just do the whole proof? Or if you can do it quickly, yeah. Okay, so we just say, um, we're talking about square root of 2. So we can say square root of 2 um, is equal to square root of... So we're assuming that we can write it like this. Well, no, do a square root. It, this turns into... The, well, what we're essentially saying is there exists some number such that... The square root of 2 equals a over b. Yeah, the square... Oh, right, yeah, sorry. Square root of 2 equals a over b. Then you say, so that means that 2 equals a squared over b squared, which means that 2b squared equals a squared. This is all just like 7th grade arithmetic. Um, uh, and then you just, so what we're saying is that these two are co-prime, um, which means that we can, we can say with definity, and uh, sorry, be, also because 2 is prime. That's important. Because 2 is prime, that means that if two, if if two divides one number, or sorry, if two divides a squared, then it must also divide a, because if two divides, because two is prime, it must divide both a and if it divides a squared, it has to divide a because you can't have, for instance, if it was twenty-five, if twenty-five divided a squared, twenty-five would not by necessity have to divide a because twenty-five because you could have a equals five. But since it's prime, you can't have it be present in both. It has to be present in all of the factors in order for it to be present in the thing. So what you then know is that 2 divides a. Since 2 divides a, we can restate a as uh, some number k times, uh, times 2. Times 2. Right, it's 2k. So then we have 2k squared uh, equals... Uh, B squared? Mm -hmm. uh, no, 2B, 2B squared? Yeah, yeah, 2B squared. Um, which means, which expands out to 4K squared equals 2B squared, which simplifies to 2K squared equals B squared. And which now look at this. We've got the exact same thing as here, except we now know that 2 divides B. And since we've just shown that just as a result of this, 2 has to divide both A and B, 
then we know that A over B cannot possibly be in, in least common terms. In other words, that A and B have to both be even. And we assumed that they weren't even and proved that they were even. Which means that something has gone horribly wrong. Yes. And thus, long story short, it can't possibly be rational. Yay, nice. Long story short. Yes, Luke. Okay. So, before you said, um, when you were saying, like, oh, look, we have the square root of 2, square, uh, cube root of 2, yeah. uh, fourth root of 2, there's no way of organizing this. Mm -hmm. But there is one. What's that? Well, if you... Do it. I, uh, yeah, yeah, leap, leap. All leap right. tall deaths in a single bound. Oops. That's life. <laughs> that is life. That is life. Alright. Too much of a problem. Alright, I didn't know that either. So. And you have one half. Square root of. Wait, was it the square root of two? Square root of one half? Any matter. way you want. Square root of two, whatever. The cube root of two. So on. Then you have one third, and so on. Yeah, I mean, just technically it wouldn't be the square root of two because It'd that's be, greater than one. Right. right. So, so whatever. We'll put irrational numbers in. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so you say, okay, well, look, this goes to infinity, this goes to infinity, so the other one's, ah, oh, we're, we're in trouble. Well, if you say, okay, here's the first one. Basically, if you do it through drawing kind of diagonals. So down here would be one-fourth. So you can say, okay, the first one is one. The second one is one-half. The third one is one-third. The fourth is square root of two or whatever. And then the fifth, now I'm going back here. The fifth is one-fourth. The sixth in our list is square root of three, and so Never get to two-thirds. What? Oh, yeah, sorry. When I was drawing it on paper, I actually had two-thirds there, and just I'm, then went to that. I, what I'm thinking is, if, you, if, if you're trying to do this, what you might try to do is have it be some sort of three-dimensional thing, because you've got, the, you've got, essentially, you've got three things that are going on. You've got an order, you've, you've got an ordered pair of, you've got a three-tuple, essentially, because you've got numerator, denominator, and root number, right? Right. Um, yeah, actually, when I drew on paper, I forgot because I kicked the entire desk over. Um, but actually, right here, I, I put um, two over this, oh, two-thirds. Um, because that way I would get two-thirds, and then, and then here I just put the square root of three. Um, but that was just a way of organizing it. Yeah, but... Uh, then where does square root of two-thirds go? Yeah. Mm. What do you mean the square root of two-thirds? You need that, too. Okay, well, <laughs> the point being that the, the, the oh, 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 wait, now I see what you're saying. Now you yeah. seem much less like a crazy person. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that's generally people's reaction. All right. <laughs> so Contour tried that. The zigzag's a good idea. Contour tried it. It didn't work. Um, How do we know he tried it? Sorry? How do we know he tried it? Just for... Because, <laughs> because they're, he, he's explained in great detail what he did. That's cool. He wrote about this for 10 years. Yeah, he had time to write. He didn't have a life. He, well, yeah. He was also an incredibly good graphic artist. I think I told you that. 
Um, he was, he's one of those multi-talented people who went crazy. Did he um, get out a lot? Sorry? Did he go out a lot? I doubt it. Okay, so now then, transfinite numbers. Okay, so contour instead, as with the square root of 2. Contour decided that what he would try to do was show that at least it made sense to say that you could have a one-to-one -one correspondence between 0 and 1. So he said, let's write down, let's assume there's a list. And it's arbitrary. If there's a list, it doesn't really matter to me how that list is generated. The first thing I want to show is that there could be such a list. So I'm going to assume I don't know. I've been trying for 10 years, and I assume I don't know how to generate this list. But maybe God has that list in mind. And so what we can do is say, if there's a list, we can put it because we can, because there's, there's nothing weird about doing this. We can put it in decimal notation. Um, like with pi, the decimals would be infinitely long. But we can put them in decimal notation. So let's just say that um, I have no idea how this list is generated. It doesn't really matter. I'm just going to put a number. as the first number on the list, and this will go on forever. Then I'll put some other number, as the second number on the list. Then I'll put yet another number, as the third number on the list. How'd you know? Listening. Okay, so I've listed all the numbers. Now, I don't know that I've listed all the numbers, but I'm going to assume that in the mind of God there is a list. He's got a big list, as Gilbert and Sullivan didn't say. He's got a big list, and you can list those numbers. And we can turn this into, but no one likes to turn it into this, but we can turn it into... Um, algebraic digits, so this would be n sub 1, n sub 2, n sub 3, n sub 4, those would be the digits. Um, but it's easier if you just arbitrarily put numbers down on the board and just say that could be the list. It could be. Doesn't matter, it could be. If there's a list, at first glance it might look like that. So if there's a list at first glance it might look like that. Okay, so everyone sees how that goes. So now what he wants to show is that he has listed, it's an infinitely long list, but if this list exists, if this list exists, it can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. And that's what he's beginning by assuming, that this is the first one, this is the second, this is the third, this is the fourth, this is the fifth, etc. Okay? So just assume there's a string of digits here, a string of digits here, a string of digits there, and so forth. Okay? Everyone have that? Now he says, 
But wait. It's not going to work. As soon as he puts it this way, he says, that's not going to work. Because, he says, I'm now going to construct a new number. The way I'm going to construct the number is I am going to do a little bit like what Luca did, and I'm going to go diagonally down this list like this. So my new number, I'm going to add 1. We're going to circle round, um, so if you add 1 to 9, you get 0 again. I'm going to add 1 to each numeral. So my new number, we're going to call this new number. My new number's first digit is going to be 8, because I've added 1 to the 7. My new number's second digit is going to be 2. My new number's third digit, 6. And, you know, let's say, let's say this was a 9. My new number's fourth digit will be a 0. Let's say this is a 9 as well. My new number's fifth digit will also be a 0, etc. Okay, just assume this is filled with numbers. Fill up the board with numbers. Assume that's filled up with numbers. Now I've constructed a new number. Okay? And that new number begins 0 0.82600. Now the question is, can this new number be found on the list? The list, remembers a list of all numbers between 0 and 1. Can we find this new number on the list? So if we can find it, it'll be at the nth place on the list. Okay? If it's on the list, it'll be somewhere on the list. It'll be at the nth place on the list. So, Abby, go, go for it. It just it means that if that number is part of the list, then you included it before when you were doing this, and so you used those digits to get the new digits, which is not possible. Right. So the way to put this is to say it can't be the first number on the list because the first digit of the new number differs from the first digit of the first number. It can't be the second number on the list because the second digit of the new number differs from the second digit of the second number. It can't be the third number on the list because the third digit of the new number differs from the third digit of the third number. It can't be the nth number on the list, which is what we want it to be, but it can't be the nth number on the list because why? Say it, say it. The nth digit will be plus one of the uh, nth. Um, yeah. will, di will differ from the nth digit of the nth number. So it can't be the nth number on the list because the nth digit will differ of our new number will differ from the nth digit of the nth number. So it's not on the list. If we thought we had a list, if God in his mind had a list of the decimal expansions of all the numbers between 0 and 1, I could give God a number, or another God who was, who was um, as quick and, and, and as able to communicate as God himself was, could give God a number, could look at that list and say, no, here's the number you missed, and could then construct a number that wasn't on the list. 
And if God then said, okay, so you add it to the list, then God number two could say, yeah, but now I can construct another number not on your list. So it's always possible to show if someone says, here's a complete list in one-to-one -one correspondence to all the natural numbers, it's always possible to show that there's at least one number not on the list. Now, in fact, it's possible to show right away that there are nine numbers not on the list, simply by looking at the first number and saying, well, I could add one, or I could add two, or I could add three, or I could add four, and then add one to all the others. But that means that it's really easy to show that there are 81 numbers not on the list, which means it's really easy to show that there are 729 numbers not on the list, which means that it's really easy to show, and I don't know what there are nine to the all of numbers not on the list. And it happens in whatever base you do it in. Including base two. Including base two. Yes. Go, go, go. And so if you do it in base two, and you can do this, you can just say that there's a bijection between the decimal, like decimal point, blah, 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 and just regular binary numbers, right? What you can say then is that there are um, there are two to the Aleph not uh, numbers of, of numbers that aren't on your list. And we already know that two to the Aleph not is, uh, is Aleph one, because... Well, now we know it. Well, oh wait. This is how we prove it. From a different class. Sorry. This is how we prove it. Okay. Um, now we know it. We didn't already know okay, it. Now, now we know now, it. Now we know it. Um, this, this is also because you can... Uh, what, what's cool is you can say, do, do people know the concept of a power set? Um, okay, so hang on to the concept of a power set because we're going to get to it. Right. Basically, the number of subsets of a set, do people know this theorem? If you have a set with three members in it, how many subsets does that set have? Anyone know right offhand? Six. Yeah. Four. No. Three. Three. Wait, this is my notes. We talked about this. Yeah, we did. Power set. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Eight. It's two to the cardinality of the set. So if it has three elements, it's ABC. We have um, subset with just A in it, subset with just B in it, subset with just C in it. The null set, that's four. Subset with A and B in it is five. Subset with B and C in it is six. Subset with A and C in it is seven. And the subset with A, B, and C in it is eight. Binary number of the, the same length that the set is the number of elements in the set, because if you said you basically just construct a bijection from a subset of the set to the binary number by saying, okay, so the first element of the set, if it's in your subset, give it a one. If it's not in your subset, give it a zero, and that covers all the binary numbers there, and you know that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Someone else's hand was up. Someone was looking skeptical. Okay. All right, so look, the main thing that Contour showed, um, and this is what you really need to know to show that there's more than one order of infinity. Um, from this, you can really take off, but, um, and we will take off a little bit, um, the, way, the way Kenny's already trying to push us. Um, from this, you can go off the, the, um, the infinite cliff. Um, but... The main thing to see is Contour spent 10 years trying to construct a way to list all the numbers between 0 and 1. 
Finally, he said, let's just assume such a list exists. And he said, but if I assume that list exists, I can immediately construct a number not in that list. And that means that the list can't exist because it's supposed to contain all numbers between 0 and 1. But I can give you a number that's not on the list. And the fact that I can do that means the list did not contain all numbers between 0 and 1. So you assume that such a list exists, and then you show that there's a number not on the list. That there is, that there is not one-to-one -one correspondence between the natural numbers and all the numbers between 0 and 1, including the irrationals. It's actually a weird kind of induction. Because, you know, like, so like when you're doing an inductive proof, you, you assume that you, you have a base case, and, or rather, and then you, then you assume that, that if it's true for n, you try to prove that it's true for n plus 1. So what you end up doing here is you say, all right, so say we've got this set that contains everything. If we assume that, we can show that it doesn't actually contain everything and that we can add one to it. But given the assumption that it contains everything, no matter how many times you keep adding one, you can always prove in, inductively to infinity that you can't possibly have the full set because you can always keep adding one. So you can't. Right, well, what you're doing is it's a weird kind of induction where you're showing the base case can't be true because it, because it, follow, it doesn't work. Because if you say something like, look, let's take the set of all even numbers, all right? Mm -hmm. Now, we wanted to show that that was in one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. That's the one thing. Sorry? I said that's, that's one of the few things I get from, like, totally set. Okay, fine. So how could you disprove that? You would have to find another even number that wasn't in the set of all even numbers already. So you assume you have the set of all even numbers. And then Contra comes along and says, oh, but have you considered the fact that this number that ends with 3 is actually an even number? But it wasn't in your original set, because your original set of all even numbers were numbers that ended with 0, 2, 4, 6, or 8. And you could look at him and say, yeah, but your number that ends with 3 actually isn't an even number, so it doesn't matter. Um, so the idea of a set of all even numbers, that's an idea that you can't say, oh, but the very idea of that set requires you to understand that there's a number that you didn't put into that set that was even. But that it doesn't. There's nothing wrong with the set of all even numbers. You can't construct an even number that wasn't in that set. So Contour is now saying take the set of all numbers between 0 and 1, and it doesn't contain all numbers between 0 and 1 because I can show you a number that isn't in that set. Um, yeah? Are these decimals infinitely long? Like yeah. they've been playing many digits? Yes. Yes. No, they can go all be well, zeros. I mean, if they're rational numbers, the zeros can go forever. Yeah, but they just, they just have to go on forever. It's well, just to do the... Yeah. You can only do the actual I mean, things if it's a square, it so it has to be set. this way to infinity and this Right. Okay. Yeah. So what happens is, if you get to... It differs from 0.5. Let's say 0.5 is the, hundred, the hundredth digit in your list. It differs from 0.5 because... The hundredth digit in the new list yeah, will 0. be 5. 0.5 followed by 98 zeros followed by a 1. But followed 0.5 has those zeros, though. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
So you just do the you do all the trailing zeros. Yeah. So it's all, like what we were talking about a couple of months ago. Also, the you assume you have the set of all just natural numbers from one to you know infinity, infinity for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, but then you know, so you assume you have every single number in that set. You could just add one more to the last number you think there is, and so there's more. Yeah, you can always add one more, but here what we're talking about is can, is there a set? Not can you can you dump more things in that set and still put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers? You always can. But is there a set to begin with that contains, does it make sense to say, here is a set that contains all irrational numbers and that set is the same size as the set of all natural numbers? And if you say, yes, I can put those into one-to-one -one correspondence, so I can put even numbers into one-to-one -one correspondence, I can always have um, a way of going back and forth between those two things. If you take the set of all numbers expressible in decimals, as long as the decimals don't have to be repeating decimals, but expressible in decimals between 0 and 1, if you take all of those, can you put them into one-to-one -one correspondence with natural numbers? The answer is yes, that's what we've done. We've, we've taken an infinite but an alpha, uh, um, an all sub-zero number of, ir of irrational numbers between zero and one, we put them into one-to-one -one correspondence, but it turns out it's not all of them. There's always one that isn't there. And in fact, not only is there always one that isn't there, but in base 10, there are always nine that aren't there just inspecting the first number, I can give you nine numbers not in that. Inspecting the first two, I can give you 81 numbers not in the original set. So I can give you a huge number of numbers not in the original set, but I only had to give you one. Because, so the idea of a set that contains all numbers is now a set that you can't have. Think of the Library of Babel. Well, you can't have it in terms of... In terms of, of the original set. That is the set in terms, of, in terms of something that you can put into one-to-one -one correspondence. Now, the reason, okay, yeah, well, you're bringing up an important point. If I can talk about the nth digit of the nth number, when I say nth and nth in those two things, I'm talking about a digit I can count up to. So the nth, you can count up to n no matter how large n is. That's what the natural numbers are. They're numbers that can be expressed as 1, 2, 3, comma, dot, 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 n. Dot, dot, dot. So, the, so in natural numbers, in counting numbers, I can always count up to n. And therefore, I can always talk about the nth digit of the nth number because that's a digit I can get to by counting. Oh, wait, it's the fifth digit of the fifth number, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, I can get to that. Here, Contour says, well, obviously, there are an infinite number of points between 0 and 1. However, we can't list them all, even theoretically. God can't list them all. The reason God can't list them all, well, Contour thought God could, but he had a weird idea of God. Um, but the reason a normal idea of God couldn't list them all is because if you could list them all, I could come up with a number not on that list. 
So the answer is, in the same way that we say irrational numbers, they're fine. They're just not numbers that you can express as a ratio of two integers. We say um, irrational numbers between 0 and 1, the number of them is infinite, but it's so infinite that we can't say, oh, this number isn't on the list because it would differ from any number on the list in the nth digit, because Contour is going to say, you, you'll never get to count up to the nth digit, because it's a higher order of infinity than counting can get you to. So, Aleph sub zero, any number in the set Aleph sub zero is a number that you could count to if you counted long enough. Here, we have an order of infinity which contains, which are called uncountably infinite. You can't count to the number to the number of numbers in this set. So you can no longer say that any number will be the nth number in the set, because nth means you can count to it. You can't count to any number in this set. So it's something that's called un undenumerable is one word for it, or uncountable is another. Amanda first. Wasn't your hand up? Okay, yeah. Is um, a set of real numbers no, that, but you so don't want to open up that can of worms, but yeah. you just did. Um, Contour spent a lot of time trying to prove that Aleph 1 was a set of real numbers. Um, in 1965, it was proved that it's undecidable. This is the axiom of choice, right? No, it's not the axiom of choice, although I think it's part of it. Paul Cohen um, essentially was the person who proved that it was undecidable, that if you said that there was an order of infinity between the number of rationals and the number of reals, if you said there was no order of infinity between them, you, you hit no contradiction. If you said there was at least one order of infinity between them, you hit no contradictions. Um, so it's undecidable, but that's something we're not touching in this class. It's undecidable whether the whether there are any order of infinity between all of zero and the number of reals. It has been proved that there's no order of infinity less than all of zero, which is an interesting thing to prove. Contour proved that. But it's undecidable whether there's an order of infinity between all of zero and the number of reals, where all of one is. Um, that's undecidable. But after all of zero, there's like, they don't know what They don't know where the next order is. Yeah, and they know the reals are a higher Aleph. Okay. Um, Kara. Um, is the set of all irrational numbers between 0 and 1 um, the same type of infinity as the set of all irrational numbers, period? I want to say yes, but I'm not positive. Um, I'm pretty sure yes, but I'm not positive. No? It has to be true. You, yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm almost certain that I've seen a proof. Yeah, but don't bet on it, you know, and blame me if you lose. Yeah. Um, earlier in class, you were doing arithmetic for infinity. Like yeah. You were doing like two times infinity. Yeah. What if, I, I, I don't, like, it doesn't make sense. It's like, what if you have infinity plus one? That's infinity. Right? Yeah, it's the same word. But that, make, that means one's equal to zero. Because infinity plus one equals infinity. No, it means infinity makes, one equals zero. no, it, makes, it means infinity looks, makes one look like zero. Makes one look like zero. Yeah, infinity is so, so small compared to infinity that looks like that zero, one so. can't that one can't affect it. Yeah. But one plus infinity equals infinity. So track infinity by both sides. One equals zero. Yeah, but if you no, that's the that's the point about once you go into the infinite, you start subtracting infinity. Infinity minus infinity might equal infinity, or it might equal a finite number, or it might equal zero. Are you saying in this case it might equal the finite number of one, so one equal one. 
Yeah. All right. What if you're interested? If you're interested, what we can prove Wednesday is that two that the power set of any infinite set is a higher order of infinity. That is that two to the infinity. The power set is two to the cardinality of the set. Two. The power set, that is the number of subsets of any infinite set, will always be a higher order of infinity than the original infinite set. That's how you prove there are an infinite number of infinities. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's it's the it's the same essential way of thinking. 